Hey everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, if you follow the news closely, that you know not too long ago, leaders in Southeast Asia countries were invited to the White House. And since the first time, the sitting President Joe Biden met up with the leaders from the Southeast Asia. Now, during the visit, a lot of issues related to domestic political changes and international crisis topped the agenda. But meanwhile, China was not on the list. And that could send a mixed message to the country. And mainly that China today plays such a significant and important role in terms of political expansion and economic growth. So that's why today it's so important that we need to understand this ongoing transition or the relationship between China and with some of the countries in Southeast Asia. And again, if you follow the political changes closely, the country of the Philippines just recently elected a brand new president. Now, under more suspicion and uncertainty, this new president might have a brand new message not only to the people in the Philippines, but also to the leader in China. And join our show today, it's Professor Enrico Gloria. And Professor Gloria, it's Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Department of Political Science, the University of the Philippines, Diliman. His area of interest include Chinese foreign policy, Philippine foreign policy, foreign policy discourses, and the major power status. And of course, during his time in China, he also served as a research intern at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing. Now, without further ado, let's welcome Professor Gloria. Professor Gloria, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Hello. Uh, hello to your audience, and thank you for having me here, Will. Thank you. You're welcome. The pleasure is all mine. Now, let's get started. Again, Professor, as I mentioned before, initially because this amazing article that you wrote and entitled Fears of a Marcos Government Courting China are overblown. Now, as I mentioned before, the country of the Philippines just successfully elected a new leader. Now, this can't change the political atmosphere domestically and also internationally. Now, the first question in the article or within the article, I want to ask, how much is the trust today existing between the Philippines and China? Again, given this condition, China is growing politically and economically, and the Philippines is standing at the crossroads in terms of dealing with U.S. and China at the same time. But we're going to bring U.S. into the conversation later on. But again, let's go back to the first question. Right. What is the trust issue or how much trust is there between those two countries? Yeah. Well, thank you for that question. And as you've noted, no, I've written that paper with Dr. Andrew Yu, and we really studied this particular puzzle wherein uh, there seems to be high trust ratings between uh, Chinese government and the Philippine government. But if you go down at the mass level or when you talk to the average Filipino, the tr trust remains low. No? Mm. And surveys have consistently shown that uh, at least for all the traditional partners of the Philippines, China remains the lowest rated partner or basically the net trust ratings that we register for China remains persistently low despite the um, better relations that have transpired during the, uh, the Duterte administration, the public diplomacy efforts, and the 
uh, many strategies to strengthen Chinese influence in the Philippines, it seems like it didn't really make a huge impact on how we continue to or how we perceive China. And as we've argued in that paper, it really boils down to national identity of Filipinos. And I think uh, Filipinos have come to associate their national identity strongly with that sense of nationalism that is anchored as well in the current territorial dispute that we have with China. So it goes without saying that any efforts that China does to in, to better its image, to uh, increase its influence in other areas, will simply be blunted by its um, persistent assertive behavior at the security or strategic front. Right, And we're talking about here uh, the claims of China in the West Philippine Sea. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, uh, that will be the case for Philippine-China relations, right? But it only shows to you that uh, uh, really the, the mistrust that has been persistent between China and Philippine relations no, uh, really goes deep, unfortunately, that it surpasses uh, any administration, no matter how popular, no matter how friendly with China, the mistrust will continue to be there. And we've seen that uh continue uh, in the last decade, really. Professor Gloria, you know, again, you are the expert on foreign policy, not only on the Chinese side, but also on the Philippine side. But Mm -hmm. I want to ask the next question related to foreign policy from the Chinese perspective. We know that for the Chinese government, meddling with international affairs has never been the interest for the Chinese government. You know, we can look at the government of Afghanistan and we can look at the ongoing war in Ukraine and, of course, so many more. China has never been active in engaging other countries' domestic affairs. But meanwhile, again, within this article, and again, I quote something that you wrote, or you wrote with uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Yohan as well. It says, it's also noticeable that Marcos has been heavily criticized for the lack of clear platforms compared to other presidential candidates. So in other words... If China, let's just say, if this election were only about the Philippines, how come China is continue being looped into the conversation? So in other words, how could China influence another country without directly, uh, directly bring the benefits? So indirectly, how does China do it? Well, I think... Uh you're right that China doesn't really interfere in the affairs of, say, the Philippines, no? but it figures really in the domestic political discourse and the discussion in the Philippines simply because China is a very consequential neighbor, right? The mere proximity of China, the mere uh, entanglement of our domestic economies makes it inevitable for us to talk about China here in the Philippines and how you know, these presidentials and uh, Bongbong Marcos, who is the president-elect, should have uh, created a concrete policy program uh, with respect to our foreign policy with China. Uh, So China doesn't need to lift a finger, obviously. Uh, It's really the relationship that does the work for China, uh, if you get what I mean. Like, uh, there's simply so much at stake with our relations with China that I think uh, it's important that we talk about it in the domestic political discourse. Mm. 
Professor, I want to, again, going back to the intro that I mentioned, not too long ago, I guess, to be more precise, two weeks ago, the leaders of ASEAN were invited to the White House for the first time since Joe Biden became the president. And during the summit that Joe Biden sent this clear message, it's called Southeast Asia Neutrality. So again, when we look at this foreign policy site from the U.S., again, some people could argue has been very productive in terms of engaging with allies and try to uh, repair this broken relationship uh, which took place by these predecessors. But meanwhile, in terms of the policy or the foreign policy engagement in Asia, Joe Biden, again, under his administration, especially dealing with China or dealing with Southeast Asia, has been lax or has been lacking of much effort. So my first question to you is, what does that summit say regarding the U.S. relationship with the countries in Southeast Asia, particularly with the Philippines? And the next question is, how should China interpret this summit or this relationship forward? Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of what it means to ASEAN and to the countries in ASEAN, I think it, uh, it's a long overdue uh, restatement of the United States commitment in the region. I think most of the analysts you now would say that this is pretty much symbolic, no? mm. especially if you're going to look at how the strategic partnership has been elevated to a comprehensive strategic partnership. No, granted that it is symbolic, no, I think it still has to be done. It has mm. to be rhetorically articulated. No, especially if you're coming from a uh, situation where the last meeting took place. Uh, six years ago, right? So this is a, an eventful um, summit in a sense that it's a uh, it symbolizes the United States commitment again uh, to the region. No? It says to China that um, uh, the game is not yet over, if mm. you will. That uh, we will continue to build deeper presence in ASEAN, no? albeit slowly. Probably um, a lot to catch up with what ch uh, China has established in the past couple of years in ASEAN, no? but still a welcome uh, restatement of uh, the United States commitment in the region. No? Uh, but of course, no, uh, there, there's a point to be made that, for instance, the economic pledges that was uh, mentioned by Biden during this uh, summit uh, really compares uh, starkly less no, to the $1.5 billion uh, uh, commitment or pledge by China. Whereas United States only pledged $150 million. Mm. So uh, in terms of economics, which I think uh, ASEAN countries really need at this moment, uh, I think the United States needs to do much more uh, on that area. You know, if it seeks to really influence the balance in the region, right? So, but at the same time, you know, in other areas, there has been pretty much uh, obvious development. For instance, uh, uh, the commitment to uphold uh, national sovereignty, mm. territorial integrity, not just with uh, the, the ongoing dispute in uh, the South China Sea, but also in Ukraine. No? I think that is also quite a step up no, to what, for instance, ASEAN was willing to say uh, with respect to the Ukraine-Russia conflict. No? Although in the statement, no, uh, ASEAN or uh, the, the joint statement did not mention Russia, and this is obviously because of ASEAN's um, insistence. No, it's still pretty much uh, significant that 
there is a call to respect Ukraine's sovereignty, uh, respect its territorial integrity, no? which would automatically mean that or it would automatically push ASEAN leaders to simply um, never recognize Russians, Russia's annexation or occupation of Ukraine. No? So, uh, and I think no, that is already a victory for the United States because at the end of the day, no, it's a major concern for the United States what's happening in uh, Russia and Ukraine. So, uh, the fact that I think uh, United States was able to get that from ASEAN mm. means that um, strategically ASEAN is still important for the United States, right? Mm. And we cannot take uh, away the fact that much of the flashpoints in the Asia Pacific would probably happen in the region, would probably involve ASEAN countries. No? Uh, economically, uh, ASEAN is also a big market, right? So, for instance, in the Indo-Pacific Indo-Pacific uh, economic uh, framework, no? I think it's important that the United States really provide concrete uh, uh, benefits for ASEAN countries to join this particular framework. And unfortunately, we have not seen that being laid out in the summit, no? which probably is one of the reasons why we say that the summit is purely symbolic. No? Mm. But yeah, overall, I agree that it is symbolic, no? but it's a good first step, if you will, no? in uh, furthering ASEAN-US relations, which has been uh, practically uh, uh, stagnated during the previous uh, Trump administration. Mm. You know, Professor, it's so interesting that you use the word symbolic. Now, when we talk about let me rephrase that. When we refer to this economic partnership, especially for the countries, you know, in Southeast Asia, the ASEAN members, they're actually looking for ways to improve their domestic economic uh, 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 growth. Because we know that from the pandemic, that the world almost took a turn. You know, again, not not just about the U.S., but about the entire world. But countries in Southeast Asia was hit, you know, really hard, and the countries were struggling. Now, let me remind you, Professor. Again, you know this better than I do. Currently, if we look at China today, China is facing another major lockdown because of the pandemic and throughout the, the countries because uh, you know the pandemic. Many many nations. I mean, excuse me. Many cities uh, uh, face the lockdown. But meanwhile. The inflation is also taking place in the U.S. So again, if the ASEAN members were looking for the partnership, economically speaking, on one hand, China is in this economic slowness. U.S. is facing the issue of inflation. Neither of the partner at this moment look promising. So my question to you is, Professor, what are the alternatives for the ASEAN members? So in other words, can the ASEAN members still rely on the two major powers or is time for them to wake up to find the third solution? Yeah, uh, well, that's a very good take on the economic situation and realities in ASEAN. No? Uh, you're definitely right. No, I think it's very wrong for 
any single ASEAN country to simply rely on these two major powers. Mm. Uh, although admittedly, they have really shaped the regional dynamics. Mm. But I think it's really um, a testament to the reality of the uh, international system, if you will, which is we're, we are in a state where it's all about multilateralism and uh, establishing, establishing relations with not just a single or a or two major powers, mm. no, but exploring our, our options even beyond China and the United States. And I think there are some progress that are being done with respect to that area. Uh, India and Japan, uh, I think, have um, pretty much maintained a significant economic presence in the region. Mm. ASEAN as an economic block in itself no, uh, continues to uh, thrive no, by itself. And ASEAN countries have relied with each other. No? You also have European uh, nations and EU as a whole, mm. who has also engaged with ASEAN. And um, I think there are engagements, uh, multiple engagements on those different levels. No? So uh, the, the slowdown is really not just for uh, US and China as well. I think it's global. No? So the more reason, I think, for, for not just ASEAN, but for everyone in the world really to explore more multilateral mm. engagements no? as opposed to very exclusive, if you will, uh, economic frameworks. Mm. Professor, I want to go back to the article that's something you wrote. And again, we know that China influences other countries, again, without directly interfere their political agenda. But meanwhile, in the article that you and uh, Dr. Yo also wrote, China also increased the number of scholarships uh, allotted to the Filipinos to study abroad under the China government scholarship. We know education is power. As much as we know education could open up the world of opportunities. Now, from your perspective, do you think that this is something that China intentionally to, to boost its presence in the Philippines by, by offering the scholarship to the people in the Philippines? Or China is slowly or gradually or even secretively trying to uh, uh, slip into this political agenda to the country, to the people in not only in the Philippines, but around the world. Because, you know, when we talk about scholarship and when we talk about, you know, one of the controversial institutions is called a Chinese Confucius Institute. Those institutes were shut down in the U.S., because the political or any other conspir conspir uh, conspiratory reasons. But to the Philippines, why do you think China offer that scholarship? Are there any uh, uh, secretive uh, reasons or secretive motives behind the scholarship that we don't know about? Well, you know, Will, I mean, I think it could be both reasons. No? Well, as it is, no, we don't have data to really uh, say with uh, finality that there are um, malicious intentions no, on uh, furthering people-to-people -people relations mm. and basically furthering the uh, diplomacy part of China on the education or cultural level. No? So it's simply safe to assume that probably uh, these major powers, when they extend such opportunities to other countries, there's also a political intent there. No? And it's not unique to China. Uh, I think other countries who've offered scholarships as well, no? mm. meant to you know, influence the future leaders' uh, 
students who will be coming in, say, in Europe or in the United States, no, to be more amicable towards um, the culture and what uh, the values that they hold. No? So it's not really a uh, big secret, if you will. But admittedly, I think China has been has been stepping up no? the engagement on this front. If you, uh, I think we cited a data in our paper that. Uh, way back in 20 uh, pre-pandemic levels, no scholarships increased to around probably doubled in number. Mm. No? So the current number of recipients is around 180 students. No, the latest tally. No, and this is far from when I first applied for the Chinese government scholarship. Mm. So disclaimer that I was also a beneficiary of it during my batch in 2015. We were only 15, 13 to 15 mm. recipients. And the, the latest figure in 2020 is around 180. So there's a really a huge, I guess, uh, emphasis on behalf of China uh, at the um, at the ex- educational exchange diplomacy aspect. No? And I really think there's nothing wrong with that as long as the beneficiaries are cognizant or um, aware of the fact that. Uh, there might be uh, political motivations behind it. No? Uh, at the end of the day, it's free education, mm. right? A- any, especially in the developing world, no. Uh, I think we need that. No? So any help coming from uh, any a country, whether it's China, whether it's India, whether it's US, no. I think we are gra- uh, gladly open to those possibilities and opportunities. Mm-hmm. Professor Gloria, I want to move on to our topics, and I know your time is very precious, and I got three more questions before letting you go. Let's talk about something going on right now in the world, which is the war in Ukraine. One article came out recently that called China's The Fate, or The Fate of China, has trapped or has been trapped over Ukraine. So in other words, as soon as we see the war in Ukraine broke out between Russia and Ukraine, China became the center of the conversation. And we know that Joe Biden had the second virtue a meeting with the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, specifically discussed regarding the war and urged China not to support Russia or a Russian government in terms of invading or attacking Ukraine. But fast forward today, there are a lot more international political scientists to believe that Beijing or Xi Jinping is getting more paranoid because of the war in Ukraine. So my question to you is, what is the best position or understanding of China in terms of dealing or looking at the war in Ukraine? Because again, we're looking at, uh, uh, I guess we can say two to three options. Either we can support you, uh, support Ukraine, or we can support Russia, or we can be a bench player, just stand on the side. But right now, it doesn't look very promising on either of the options. So that's how I would say, what is the best way to understand China's attitude in terms of this war in Ukraine? Uh, and I would approach this in terms of this question in terms of uh, the things that I'm studying in international relations. And the thing with that is, I think it's important to stress the uh, significance of international norms, mm. uh, values, no, and the principles that for instance, certain events stand for. No? And I think this is uh, quite troubling for China in a sense that um, the conflict is really a challenge or a testing ground for the legitimacy 
and for the endurance of norms like so respecting territorial integrity, respecting national sovereignty, mm. right? And for small nations like, for instance, the Philippines, no, these particular norms and principles are, uh, for lack of a better term, are weapons of the weak. No? Mm. These are the only weapons that we have in our arsenal to really have a uh, a equal voice, if you will, a to level the playing field between us and the major powers. Mm. So I think it's uh, China should um, take uh, notice of this event simply because um, it could also be um, familiar to its experience or China could resonate well from the experience of Russia, for instance, if, you know, uh, Ukraine uh, emerged victorious from this conflict, right? So that is a challenge and I understand that uh, China is currently sitting at the fence on this one uh, because there's a lot of stake, definitely. That's right. But yeah, uh, it's really a battle, if you will, for the norms, no? for the resiliency of the norms that had that has uh, been the reason for um, the existence of the current global order, right? So we are a at a turning point, if you will, no whether we're going to stand by those norms, mm. specifically respecting the sovereignty of nations, no? respecting territorial integrity, or if we're going to let another major power no? uh, walk over such uh, principles. No? So, yeah, uh, that's why it's also important to really focus on how China will, uh, will, will navigate this um, very complicated situation in Europe. Now, I want to add on uh, one question, uh, Professor Gloria. Do you think that the Ukrainian government placed a wrongful bet on the U.S.? Because we know that, again, the higher officials from the U.S. government, you know, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, the First Lady, Jill uh, Biden, and also any other uh, major Democratic or Republican leaders has already visited Ukraine but so far, Joe Biden has not made that as the priority. But meanwhile, he's going to visit some of the countries in Asia very soon. So in other words, do you think the Ukrainian government or Zelensky as the head of the Ukrainian government actually placed a wrong bet on the U.S.? So in other words, he should have looked at China first or he should have looked at other options in terms of solely initially uh, uh, placing the confidence in Joe Biden or his administration? Well, I do, at this point, I really can't blame the decision made by Zelensky and his government because I think the options at the very beginning were limited to begin with. So uh, uh, the situation or, uh, yeah, the, the, the events basically seemingly forced Zelensky to take the U.S. route, if you will. Right. So, and he's not wrong for uh, for taking that decision in terms of how he calculated mm. the risks and the options involved. No? I don't think he would be getting much from China if he decides to pursue the China route, or if there's even a China route to begin with. Right. So it's just that I think in the United States and on behalf of Biden, it's just taking a lot of time to uh, to represent or to show and manifest firm commitment for. Uh, Ukraine's interest and understandably so because like what I've said a lot is at stake and uh, the United States is also calculating what options it, it has not to 
exact the maximum benefit from the situation mm. right so uh but you know europe is also a key player in this one no? uh so there are a lot of uh, quote unquote friends uh, that zelensky could turn to if the united states is not budging as of the moment but i think it's pretty clear that it's uh still a battle of values if you will no? so those who are more likely to see ukraine uh at the same at the same framework or at the same level that that would be beneficial for ukraine so going to um freedom loving countries mm. in the europe or united states for instance would be the more credible option for ukraine mm. Professor, I want to go back to um, the relation between uh, Philippines and China. And again, when we uh, talk about this territorial uh, question or the territorial dispute, and everyone knows that South China Sea has been one of the major and sensitive topics, not only for the country of Philippines, but uh, around the entire region. You know, many countries were involved. But so far, from the predecessor, Rodriguez Duterte, he has been very friendly and very, what I quote, generous regarding this region to China. Now, Marcos just got elected as the new leader for the Philippines. Simple question, Professor. What is going to happen to this issue? I mean, remember, even though hypothetically, if uh, 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 the Philippines government decide to give away or I mean, I wouldn't say giveaway, but let's just say, even though try to make a, a compromise with China in terms of this territory, but remember, rest of the regions or rest of the countries are not going to let go easily because they're still counting as partners or members uh, of the whole South China Sea. So again, from your perspective, how would the new government in the Philippines handle this issue properly without damaging the relationship with China? Well, President-elect Bongbong Marcos has been uh, pretty uh, clear that he would um, sort of maintain, in a way, the position that was adopted by Rodrigo Duterte's administration in West Philippine Sea. And that is on the basis of the 2016 arbitral ruling, which the Philippines won, uh, uh, he will not really talk about Philippine-China relations from that perspective. Mm. So it's uh, simply uh, sort of shelving away the, dis the, the, the ruling or the victory, so to speak. But different from the Duterte administration's policy, Marcos has also been um, uh clear in some instances that he intends to continue or maintain the alliance with the united states which is quite uh the opposite of what duterte did mm. in a sense that duterte has really antagonized uh the united states within uh, uh within his foreign policy programs no? so that is going to be different, no? but at the same time, I think the real takeaway there is that uh, six years since the arbitral ruling victory, there's still no strong commitment from any Filipino president mm. no, to actually uphold this document. And it's really going against 
what I believe is the Filipino national interest. Again, if we're going back to the trust ratings uh, that are frequently being released, uh, Filipinos want their governments to assert uh, the, the arbitration ruling uh, that we won. Uh, but for strategic or political reasons, uh, the popular presidents that uh, that are winning the elections or that have that will that have governed the Philippines since 2016 seem to really pay no attention to the arbitral ruling. No? Mm. So I think there's going to be pretty much a continuation of the status quo in the West Philippine Sea, no? where we will see continue uh, continuing of China's increase or creeping assertiveness in the area. No? Uh, I think in the past two years, no, there are many instances where China is now relying on uh, marit this Chinese maritime militia. So what these are are basically Chinese fishermen mm. who are uh, basically empowered by the Chinese state no, to, to become assertive when it comes to claiming uh, the contested territories, right? So it makes it hard for international governments to apprehend them because they are at the face value fishermen, right? So... There's going to be more of that situation where China resorts to gray zone tactics no? or basically ambiguous tactics of assertiveness mm. to slowly uh, build a strong presence in the area, again, at the demise of Filipino national interests. No? So at the end of the day, uh, this could have been prevented if we capitalized on the victory that we won in 2016, which unfortunately the Duterte administration didn't quite emphasize. And we will see that continue with Bongbong Marcos. No? Uh, there's going to be more emphasis on building friendly relations with mm -hmm. China, but I think that will come at the expense of uh, our national interest in the West Philippine Sea. But at the same time, there's going to be improvement on U.S.-Philippine alliance, which we've seen to take a different uh, turn no? during the Duterte administration. Professor Gloria, I want to end our conversation with something, again, we're looking ahead, even though that I know you study Chinese foreign policies and Filipino uh, government foreign policies, but again, within this international relationship, I still uh, can't uh, uh, stop this curiosity. As we mentioned before, President Joe Biden is going to visit Asia very soon for the first time, and he's going to tour the country of Japan, which elected a brand new prime minister. And also he's going to visit the leader of North, uh, South Korea, which is, again, has another new leader as well. Now, from your perspective, Professor, how significant is for Joe Biden to meet with uh, uh, the Prime Minister of Japan and also the new President of South Korea. And what what does that say uh, regarding this relationship to China as well? Well, I think it only reaffirms uh, America's commitment in the Asia-Pacific. No? That at the end of the day, much of uh, U.S. external interests really lies at the Asia-Pacific at this point. No? And that is probably uh, part of the explanation why Zelensky seems to be looking at a uh, non-committal United States at this mm. point, because much of the interests really is in the Asia-Pacific, specifically in trying to engage with a, uh, with a risen China, if you will. No? So obviously, um, I think the United States has been very vocal in saying that 
uh, China is its top strategic competitor. Mm. No? And it makes sense, for instance, that the Indo-Pacific economic framework will actually be unveiled during his visit in Northeast Asia, as opposed to his recent uh, uh, engagement with ASEAN uh, leaders. Right. Mm. So uh, it reaffirms uh, that particular commitment you know, with Japan and South Korea as important pillars of that Asia-Pacific strategy you know, of trying to engage and match China's influence in the region. Mm. You know? So there's going, uh, it's uh, obviously a, also a continuation of the Obama, Obama brand of foreign policy, your pivot to Asia type 